what we're talking about is can we take small victories in the multilateral scale which will help not only asia but will, which will help countries which are really not connected what impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system what role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future after covid-19 what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive these are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021 a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade the series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute Hello and welcome to the Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today we're going to discuss trade and the Indo-Pacific, looking specifically at CPTPP, the BRI, and RCEP. Don't worry, we'll explain the acronyms a little bit later. Trade integration is moving ahead in Asia. With at least three major initiatives taking shape across the region, it seems the real energy and momentum in terms of trade integration and liberalization is to be found in Asia. At the same time, it raises questions whether these initiatives compete, overlap or complement one another. Now, there are two big plurilateral trade agreements that have been reached in recent years. the CPTPP which stands for Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership and RCEP the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership while CPTPP covers approximately 13% of global trade and includes 11 nations on both sides of the Pacific Ocean it was signed a number of years ago RCEP was only recently concluded includes 15 Asian countries and covers a whopping 30% of global trade. These two massive plurilateral agreements, they overlap somewhat in membership. Japan for instance is a member of both, but only one includes China, namely RCEP. And both of these initiatives, they come in an Asian trade context that is also very much shaped by China's massive multi-trillion dollar trade and infrastructure investment project called the Belt and Road Initiative BRI for short the BRI has been reshaping trade flows across the Eurasian continent and the Indo-Pacific for some years now to make sense of this and to better understand how the asian economic and strategic environment is changing as a result of these trade initiatives i'm joined by three fantastic experts in asian trade policy first of all debra elms joins us from singapore she is founder and executive director of the asian trade center dr elms is also president of the asia business trade association and among other positions she served on the trade and investment council of the world economic forum from 2017 to 2019 and from washington dc i'm pleased to welcome fazuki shastri 
Fazuki is an associate fellow of the Asia-Pacific Program at Chatham House and a senior fellow at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He was most recently Global Head of Public Affairs and Sustainability at Standard Chartered Bank. And finally, from Tokyo, Tatsuya Watanabe joins us. Tatsuya-san is Vice President of Japan's Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, RIETI for short. And most recently, he was the Director General for Trade Policy at Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, called METI. Before that, he was the Director General of the Multilateral Trade System Department and was closely involved in the negotiations for both CPTPP and RCIP. Now, without much further ado, let's get started. And I'd like to focus on RCIP first. RCIP really is the big new trade kid on the block, as it covers about 30% of global trade. It's a major agreement that includes China, does not include the United States. And at the same time, RCIP has been criticized for being big, but at the same time rather thin. For instance, only 90 or 92% of tariffs are covered by the agreement. These will be phased out over a period of 20 years. RCIP doesn't include a chapter on financial services. The intellectual protection chapter isn't deemed to be particularly strong. But at the same time, with 15 Asian countries involved, including big trade powerhouses like China, Japan, and South Korea, it sends a big strategic signal to the rest of the world. And amid discussions about decoupling and perhaps even deglobalization, is RCIP also about strategically locking East Asia into Chinese supply chains? Deborah, I apologize for this very long introduction, but what do you make of the importance of RCIP? I think RCEP is a very important agreement, and I'm delighted to be here to talk about it. I think this is the first time that we've united in this way in the region. So all 10 members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, are coming together with China, Japan, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand to form an Asian trade arrangement. Now, we have lots of trade agreements in Asia, and we have lots of trade in Asia. But what we have not had is a single unified agreement that hooks together all of Asia. And what it does, to make it so, sort of a simple thing, it starts to set up conditions for you to be doing trade in Asia for Asia. We've had lots of trade in the region, but most of that has been in raw materials and parts and components for assembly that then gets exported, particularly to the United States and to Europe. And what RCEP, I think, will do is it will start positioning firms to start creating goods and services and driving further investment in Asia to create products and services that are consumed ultimately in Asia. That's a game changer in my view. And is it then an instance of trade regionalization? I mean, there's a lot of discussion these days, particularly in international trade circles, that we're stepping away from globalization as such and focusing more on integrating specific trade regions. Should we see RCIP in that similar vein? Well, certainly it's easier to see it as a regional agreement, given that all the members are in this region, as compared to the CPTPP, which you mentioned, where we already span the Pacific and are, are adding in the United Kingdom uh, at some point in the near term. And so that becomes a harder deal to see as regional, since it spans a good part of the globe. RCEP, by contrast, is Asian. Uh, and so therefore, it is by default regional. 
And I think that's important, but it's also more about working together with countries that have similar vision and objectives to create some kind of economic integration at a time when the global integration impulse is slowing or disrupted. And Tetsuya-san, you've been involved in negotiating RCIP on the side of the Japanese government. What was the strategic rationale behind Japan's position to want to join RCIP? Was it about unlocking new economic potential, or or does RCEP simply consolidate existing trade patterns from a Japanese point of view? Yes, uh, RCEP is, is an attempt to connect the uh, regional supply chain and value chain. ASEAN 10 members and Japan and China and Korea and Australia and New Zealand, and, and we are trying to get India in, but uh, we are not successful having India. But uh, uh, the idea is uh, to, to create a hu- huge, seamless value chain within uh, East Asia. That was a sort of strategic target of the RCEP initiative. And uh, because of the RCEP, uh, many Japanese companies and uh, Asian companies are using ba- sub- supply chain value chain in, in the region very smoothly and uh, under the order of the, some degree of Rule of law. That is achievement set from our perspective. And in connection with CPTPP, I mean, should should we really see these two agreements as two sides of the same coin, or are they really different animals? Because RCEP involved a, a, a different uh, member of a different uh, stage of development, and so that extent of liberalization, tariff liberalization, service liberalization under, under in terms of rules, RCEP is a, a bit different from CPTP. That's true. CPTP is a basically a trade agreement among the like-minded uh, members. So, so that is a different, different, but a different attempt, but uh, that trying to achieve the regional integration. That, that was the, that is, in essence, both RCEP and the CPTPP. That's great. And, and Fazuki, could you talk to us a little bit about how you see RCEP, but also CPTPP in this context of changing strategic positioning of Asia in the global trade environment, but also, of course, developments in Asia that lead some to worry about the growing competition between the United States and China. Is CPTPP and RCEP a response to this? I mean, what's the strategic context from your point of view in, in which these trade initiatives are taking shape? Yes, we're a nation policymaker today. I think you take great deal of comfort in the fact that the WTO, after really being in cold storage uh, for close to a decade, appears to have been revitalized under new management. There seems to be a greater focus and commitment on part of the U.S., uh, certainly of, of Europe. In, in making sure that the WTO has the resources and the political capital to move forward with what looks like a really, really difficult task of getting a truly multilateral agreement on any number of issues, right? So we're not, we're not any longer talking about a Doha-type agreement or a U- Uruguay-type agreement. That was a different generation uh, altogether, and Doha indeed faltered. What we're talking about is can we take small victories, in the multilateral scale, 
which will help not only Asia, but will, which will help countries which are really not connected uh, with trade and investment. I'm thinking mainly about Africa in this context. So if you look at RCEP and CPTPP, I mean, the macro headline here is a lot of people, when, when these agreements uh, were reached, uh, spoke about them being 21st century agreements, right? And if you're talking about the 21st century trade agreement, it should include uh, protections on intellectual property. It should certainly include environmental social governance because, you know, there is now renewed focus on uh, committing to Paris. There's a major Glasgow summit happening later in the year. So climate finance, in a sense, has come back front and center. And there's the entire digital space, uh, which is still very nebulous. We still have to see in the services space whether there's room for a, for a truly digital global agreement. So if you look at it in that context, you know, both RCEP and CPTPP fall short. But if you look at it the way you pitched it, really in geopolitical terms, uh, the fact that for me, China seemed to be willing to participate in CPTPP is really interesting. And there is, you know, these trade tensions within the US and China, probably a multi-generational one. I don't think it's a cold war, but, you know, these tensions are going to remain. But if the U.S., when it decides to re-engage with Asia in the trade sphere, whether it'll be able to do it via CPTPP, which includes China, is a very interesting geopolitical question. Well, yeah, let's get to that question of whether China might be able to join CPTPP a little little bit later on. I want to pause on, okay, what's new about this agreement? And particularly also, as I mentioned in my introduction, there's some criticism that RCEP is perhaps not a 21st century, more like a 20th century trade agreement. And in that, not even as far as some traditional free trade agreements go in terms of getting rid of tariffs. And so the strategic signal may be clear, but Tetsuya-san, could you you highlight what the real economic and trade value of RCEP is from Japan's point of view? I'm going to talk about the strategic implication later, but uh, just focus on the trade aspects of the RCEP. From the Japanese perspective, uh, trade between Japan and China, many uh, goods and parts are, are going going back and forth uh, between the two countries. And uh, through the RCEP, uh, reduced uh, many of these tariffs of, of many parts and components like auto and others. So economically speaking, that will be a very uh, benefit for, for, for getting from that uh, RCEP agreement. And Deborah, perhaps you could add to this as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is my understanding correct that RCEP, when it comes to rules of origin, actually, they level the playing fields? In other words, just getting towards that Asian regional value chain will be all that easier with RCEP put in place? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will like to dismiss RCEP as a, as a mediocre agreement. And I think that's, you've missed the point, frankly. It does a number of things that are useful. It connects together Japan and China, as just mentioned. It connects Japan with Korea, also new. So there are new connections that we hadn't had before. The connections that we have had in the region, because we have lots of FTAs, many of them carve out key items, RCEP does as well for some items, but overall the coverage is, I think, decent, especially given the incredible diversity 
of the 15 countries that were in RCEP, from enormous to tiny, from rich to poor, from landlocked to, to island countries, et cetera. This is a rough group to try to come together and get some consistency on. And at the end of the day, the total agreement is more than 500 pages. There's 17,000 pages of schedules, 14,000 pages of schedules attached to it. It's a monster agreement. It covers goods, services, investment. It does have an IP chapter. I actually think that the intellectual property rights chapter is quite strong particularly for many of the participating countries who are really poor at managing IP. So, you know, you can only push these countries so far because they, they just don't have the capacity for many of them to actually be really ambitious on intellectual property rights. It includes basically everything that people are looking for, except for labor and environmental commitments, which is not on the table in RCEP. Uh, but the rest of the agreement is comprehensive. And on the rules of origin, which is the question that you were asking me, this is a very big deal. There is one rule of origin. So when you manufacture a product now to be sold in and around 15 markets in, the, in Asia, you get the benefits with the same manufacturing process. That's actually enormously transformative. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return... We'll continue the conversation on trade and the Indo-Pacific with Deborah Elms, Tetsuya Watanabe, and Fasuki Shastri. At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm joined by Deborah Elms, Tatsuya Watanabe, and Fasuki Shastri to talk about trade and the Indo-Pacific, RCEP, CPTPP, and the BRI. And then looking at the broader sort of strategic context in which this takes place, how, how should we measure sort of the value of RCEP and CPTPP? Tatsuya-san? I think uh, trade agreements are by nature having a strategic and geopolitical implication, not just for, for liberalization of trade. CPTPP started as a original TPP with the United States uh, in the framework. And uh, the original intention uh, of the TPP is uh, setting up a sort of standard of uh, rules like uh, digital trade and uh, state-owned enterprises and uh, intellectual property in this Asia-Pacific region, setting the high standard for others to join later. That the kind of a benchmark agreement. So that is the start of the CPTPP, but uh, then United States walked away from the agreement. And uh, now, geopolitical tension and strategic rivalry between the U.S. and China 
this trade agreement has more strategic and geopolitical implication. So that is the difficulty we are facing now. And RCEP started originally as a ASEAN initiative. Japan and others supported. But in this geopolitical environment, some people see it as a Chinese initiative. That is a sort of a twist, new twist in this new environment. And how does it look from a vantage point from Tokyo? I mean, Japan is in both agreements. On the one hand, if we describe RCEP as the club that China decided to join, CPP is the one that China didn't join or hasn't joined yet. And Japan's role as straddling both agreements could function as a bridge in that respect. But what's the rationale from Tokyo to want to be present in both agreements? In this uh, geopolitical environment, uh, what we have to do is uh, to avoid the decoupling of the supply chain in entire Asia-Pacific. So we try to uh, take advantage of the CPTPP as well as RCEP for doing that. That's a sort of big uh, target what we would like to achieve. But uh, in this environment, uh, Certainly, in certain area and certain sensitive area, some degree of decoupling certainly occurred in the real business world and the real political environment. So we cannot avoid that. So we have to live with that kind of new environment, even with uh, CPTPP and RCEP. And then moving to Fazuki, you're based in the Washington area. What, what do you pick up from the Beltway buzz around both RCEP and CPTPP? It must be somewhat uncomfortable for U.S. policymakers to see such a big, massive trade agreement being reached with China, not necessarily perhaps as the main driver, but certainly at the core of RCEP amid this growing tension between the United States and China. Has it led to a new debate in Washington about whether the U.S. should join CPTPP or set up something to counterbalance the growing importance of Asia, Asian trade, and, and RCEP? Yeah, I think there was an initial level of cynicism and skepticism, uh, which I'm happy to report has kind of gone away. There's now a very realistic sense, uh, and, and this actually dates back to the Obama years, uh, when the U.S. was rather cynical about the establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, by China, you know, setting up new economic institutions, was at that time seen as a game changer in most parts of the world except the U.S. So similarly, when RCEP was agreed to, you know, there was this initial sense that this actually does not add much uh, to regional trade. But I think, you know, the political uh, agenda has changed. You've got a new set of players who are looking at this really as can the U.S. afford to stay away from the trade and investment part of its engagement with Asia at a time when, you know, you, you've got these rather robust free trade agreements involving a number of countries with which the U.S. is very keen to sustain uh, uh, trade business investment ties. Uh, but I think, you know, the two things need to happen before the U.S. can really decide. The first thing is really uh, the U.S. trying to figure out how it's going to deal with China over the next five years, over the next decade. What does that economic uh, relationship look like? Is there scope for collaboration? Or is this going to be just, just contention uh, that we've seen over the last four years? 
the U.S. you know policymakers are trying to figure out that as we speak. And the second thing really is: is there any additional thing that the U.S. can do outside of joining CPTPP, where it is able to reassure uh, economic partners that there are some side agreements that could be achieved? I'm rather skeptical that this can be. There's a lot of talk in Washington D.C. on how you can really get uh, uh, some down payment goodwill with allies uh, by promising a few trade and investment goodies. Uh, I don't know what that's going to look like, right? So short of the U.S. really reengaging in a massive way uh, with uh, CPTPP, unfortunately the bus uh, has moved on, and and the U.S. really it. And there's a great deal of domestic opposition to the notion of the U.S. entering into free trade agreements and building that domestic consensus is going to take time. Uh, so the U.S. is, you know, really I think struggling at this point in time in in figuring out how it can position itself best in the region. Deborah, do do you agree? Yeah, I think the U.S. missed a huge opportunity, and the consequences of that will be felt for quite some period of time. The the U.S plan at the moment, such as it is, is to push for no new trade agreements, think about much tougher enforcement of existing rules. And what that actually means, in my view, is you're going to hammer your allies even harder. Anyone who has an existing FTA with the United States is about to be under a microscope about whether or not you've actually complied with every provision in the existing FTA. So you're, you're really alienating your friends while you are not building up new allies elsewhere, because why would I sign up to such a thing? The U.S. is trying to, the only offensive agenda that I've heard from the U.S. that I think makes some sense is a digital-only agreement. But again, that's tricky because the U.S. will succumb to the table and say, here's our agreement, sign on to it. And I'm not so convinced that governments in Asia are that keen to do that. They've been very busy themselves creating all kinds of digital trade arrangements in CPTPP, in RCEP, standalone agreements, et cetera, and to sign on to something the United States says should be signed on to, I think is going to be challenging. And so what you've done, in my view, is you've you've created an environment in which you are unable to offensively engage in trade, but you're also angry that you're defensive on trade. And since trade and economic issues is a priority for governments in this region, I think engagement is going to be challenging. And from Japan's point of view, Tetsuya-san, Japan is, of course, a strong ally of the United States. Are you worried in some respects about the missed opportunity of the U.S. withdrawing from CPTPP? What do you think could be a potential solution? Do you think the U.S. could be brought back into the fold, if you will? Yes, uh, the withdrawal of the U.S. from the TPP is a certainly a great missed opportunity for the Asia-Pacific. From the Japanese perspective, uh, the main reason for Japan to participate in the TPP Original TPP is uh, uh, engaging the United States in the Asia Pacific. That is a strategic target of the Japanese policymakers when we entered the original TPP, but uh, it was a missed opportunity. So, if uh, United States uh, in the future 
coming back to the CPTPP, that will be great. But uh, given the domestic circumstance in the U.S., in the United States, uh, I don't see it happen in a short period of time. So it may take time, but uh, uh, Deborah mentioned about uh, digital version of a sort of TPP. Many people are having uh, uh, many variety of ideas, so we can explore a certain idea for the U.S. to coming back to the region in some way or other in terms of the regional trade architecture. That would be good. But uh, now China uh, expressed their interest uh, joining the CPTPP, so the game is uh, a bit complicated. Do you think that's going to happen? China joining CPTPP? CPTPP has a sort of benchmark for state-owned enterprise and also digital trade and uh, and other, especially rules area, uh, high standard rules. So we want to see if China can accept this kind of benchmark. We'll see. And then there's another country which we need to talk about, and that's India. To everyone's great surprise, India decided not to sign up to RCEP. Fazuki, can you help us make sense of what the Indian trade strategy is these days? I mean, what was the rationale for not joining? And how does it see this broader trade and geopolitical competition developing in its own neighborhood? Yeah, in the Indian trade trade strategy has always been conflicting, confused. Uh, This is not a new phenomenon. India is deeply ambivalent about the value of trade. And and there was a brief burst in the early 1990s after India faced a severe economic crisis. Uh, There was a consensus, the business community and the general public at large, that India needed to trade more. And, And those economic reforms of the early 1990s really helped in in building India's trade relationships, uh, not only with East Asia, but with the rest of the world. But I think more recently, uh, uh, China's presence, uh, really in terms of the number of goods uh, uh, in Indian markets, uh, which originate from China, has created a constituency of fear in the country that China is essentially dumping and it's trying to dominate uh, the Indian marketplace. And and these worries and fears uh, got aggravated because of the border tensions of last year. Uh, So, you know, at this point in time, despite the pandemic, despite the severe economic stress that the country is facing, uh, there's very limited debate uh, on on the value of, you know, boosting trade and investment relationships. And, you know, when India stepped away from RCEP, you know, obviously one reason that was offered was it would allow unlimited access to China in terms of the kind of goods and services the Chinese manufacturers uh, could sell in India. That fear has not gone away. And uh, curiously enough, and and the reason why I mentioned that India's uh, state strategy is confusing, uh, we had a heads of state summit with the EU two weeks ago, where India kind of signaled that it is is keen uh, to restart uh, negotiations in the EU-India free trade agreement, uh, which is which is uh, discussions have gone on for a decade, and uh, if you speak to analysts in uh, New Delhi, they kind of puzzled as to what 
conditions have changed or may have changed in the last few years for India to try and re-engage with the EU. One proximate reason is the sense, uh, like the U.S. has, that it has missed the Asian trade bus, that it's not India is neither part of CPTPP or RCEP. So maybe getting an FTA with the EU, which is going to be incredibly complicated to negotiate. So we'll see. But I think for the moment, trade is not going to be on the agenda of Indian policymakers. Just one follow-up question to this. I, I wasn't planning on talking a lot about the European Union, but since you brought it up, I mean, the EU is also engaging with both Japan and with India to talk about its connectivity program, for instance, which in some respects could be seen as a European response to what the Chinese have been doing with the Belt and Road Initiative. The EU is also reaching out, of course, to countries in ASEAN to move forward with bilateral FTAs. There's this prospect, this question mark of whether an ASEAN-EU trade agreement could perhaps be in the works in the future. So how do you see the EU's role in this dynamic? Fazuki, perhaps you first? Yeah, I think the EU can play a really critical role in this. And, you know, if, there's, if there is to be an EU-ASEAN free trade agreement, I think initially there should be EU-Indonesia free trade agreement. And I think that will really be the building block. And I think the EU has done a very, very good job in really selecting partners on the other side where doing FTAs is a relatively easy negotiating task, even though I'm sure they'll, uh, the negotiators themselves will show you scar tissue, particularly EU-Korea and uh, even EU-Singapore. I mean, the financial services uh, chapter, I mean, I had an opportunity uh, uh, to be on the sidelines of that agreement. I mean, the EU is, in a way, pushing forward with 21st century principles in these free trade agreements. So, you know, one should not dismiss uh, their initiatives. And if there is to be political space for an EU ASEAN or even an EU India free trade agreement, I think that will pro- provide a lot of comfort, I think, for a lot of Asian trading partners who in a way feel that they completely either focused on the U.S. market or the Chinese market, and the EU provides a way of diversification. So I think the EU really can play a very important role in these, in, in these trade and investment uh, negotiations. And Deborah, what's your take? Yeah, the EU has been very busy. They have the agreements in place with Japan, with Korea, with Singapore, with Vietnam. They are almost done with Australia and almost done with New Zealand and are in the final stretch, I think, with Indonesia. So, you know, at some point that agreement will get done. That one's been very painful to negotiate as expected. Uh, And then are meant to resume conversations again with governments like Thailand, Malaysia that have had on again, off again negotiations for some time. So I don't think we should dismiss the enthusiasm of the EU for remaining engaged in Asia, and in particular for realizing that for most Asian governments, it's trade and economics first, politics and strategic and security concerns after that. So if you really want to engage in the region, you have to put trade and economics at the beginning and then deal with all of these other issues. And I think the EU gets that. And so that's why, even though these negotiations have been challenging, in part because of the EU's standards, in part because the EU defensiveness on some key sectors, especially agriculture, and in part because of their additional trade, additional 
agenda that includes development, human rights, and labor, environment, et cetera, which is, can be challenging in Asia, they are still on the march. And I think it's important to keep one eye on what they're up to. And Tetsuya-san, there is, of course, the EU-Japan FTA, the EPA. And beyond that, the EU and Japan are talking about setting up an infrastructure initiative in some respects, in parallel to what's taking place in the context of the BRI. How do you see the EU's role in terms of having a strategic presence inside Asia's very vibrant and fascinating trade integration phase? I think the EU has the power to set the standards and rules, such as in the protection of privacy and the environment and others. So, and also, EU has a huge single market. So in this global environment of uh, geopolitical tensions, uh, EU has a power, some power as a stabilizer in the global international uh, relations. So connectivity initiative by the EU to approach the third country with partnering with Japan and others, maybe uh, uh, is very helpful in terms of the looking at the BRI and the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative. So I think the EU has a role to play uh, in this global setting and also in the context of Asia. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, this is all that we have time for today, but I thought it was absolutely fascinating to talk with the three of you, real Asia trade policy experts about the three big trade initiatives that are shaping the Asian trade space. And this is not only a story of regional integration, it definitely impacts on the global trade landscape and the global strategic landscape. And it's very interesting to hear your insights. So from my side, thank you very much to Deborah Elms, Tatsuya Watanabe, and Fazuki Shastri for joining me in this conversation about trade in the Indo-Pacific. If you're interested in this or other podcast conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.